Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 32, Exodus chapters 34, 35, 36, and 37. Okay, we've just got another week, and we get into Leviticus. Uh, you're going to enjoy that. You're going to enjoy it a great deal. Um, and we're really going to accelerate now until the end of the book of Exodus. In fact, this lesson and next week's will conclude it. All right. Um, and as we continue on our study in Exodus in chapter 34, it's good to realize that what we're essentially reading now is about the God-ordained, legitimate festivals and ritual obligations as opposed to the very similar but illegitimate festivals and ritual obligations as practiced by the Canaanites okay, and the other Middle Eastern cultures. The schedule of Jehovah's appointed times, which includes the seven biblical feasts, did indeed have some what comparable holidays in the pagan world. Right? Just as the seven biblical feasts were agricultural, agriculturally based festivals okay, that, that were timed to occur at the various seasons and the stages of planting and growing and harvesting and then letting land lie fallow. So did the nations outside of Israel do essentially the same thing. Yet the Lord says that the way and the day and the reason for celebrating those set-apart days and festivals was never to be done in the way that the pagans did their celebrating. And that it was equally as much an abomination to add some elements of those pagan traditions to the pure mode of worship authorized by God as it would be to adopt those pagan holidays. Now let me mince no words. It's astounding to me that someone who claims the Lord as his or her God would celebrate Halloween, for example. I mean, I have seen many a Christian group adopt practically every element of this pagan holy day only to change its name to fall festival or harvest festival or whatever to kind of try to make it okay. This past year I cut a picture out of the Florida Today newspaper that had a woman Sunday school teacher sitting in a pumpkin patch display of a local church dressed in full witch's costume, hat and everything sitting on a bale of straw and reading from the Bible to about a dozen attentive children. Now think about that. Okay, Did, it, did or did not God establish a true fall festival? Okay. Did he or did he not say to celebrate his festivals but to avoid all others? Of course he did. Right? And the fall seasonal festival he established is called Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? The point of any agricultural fall festival 
is to celebrate the final cuttings and then the storing of produce before winter comes on and then everything goes dormant. Okay. That is the exact timing and mode of the biblically ordained fall festival called Sukkot in Hebrew, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, Feast of Huts, goes by a number of names in English. Now let me ask this rhetorical question. Why would a Christian choose to celebrate a patently pagan festival day ostensibly to celebrate the end of the yearly agricultural cycle but completely disavow God's holy festival that also celebrates the end of the yearly agricultural cycle. I'll leave that for you to ponder. Okay. Let's reread the section of Exodus 30, chapter 34 that we're going to cover today and we're going to take up at verse 18. Exodus chapter 34, verse 18, and we're going to go to the end. We're going to do a lot of reading tonight. So keep those Bibles open. We're going to cover, I think, four chapters tonight. Reading fast. Keep the festival of matzah by eating matzah as I ordered you for seven days during the month of Aviv. For it was in the month of Aviv that you came out from Egypt. Everything that is first from the the womb is mine. Of all your livestock, you are to set aside for me, the males, the firstborn of cattle and flock, the firstborn of a donkey you must redeem with a lamb. If you won't redeem it, break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you are to redeem, and no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you will work, but on the seventh you are to rest, even in plowing time and harvest season. You are to rest. Observe the festival of Shavuot with the first gathered produce of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I'm going to expel nations ahead of you and expand your territory. And no one will even covet your land when you go up to appear before Adonai, your God, three times a year. Now, you're not to offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. And the sacrifice of the feast of Pesah is not to be left until morning. You are to bring the best first fruits of your land into the house of Adonai, your God. You're not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Adonai said to Moshe, write these words down because they're the terms of the covenant I have made with you and with Israel. Moshe was there with Adonai 40 days and 40 nights, during which time he neither ate nor ate food nor drank water, and Adonai wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he didn't realize that the skin of his face was sending out rays of light as a result of his talking with Adonai. When Aharon and the people of Israel saw Moshe, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to approach him. But Moshe called to them. Then Aaron and all the community leaders came back to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he passed on to them all the orders that Adonai had told him on Mount Sinai. Once Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when he went in before Adonai for him to speak, he would take the veil off until he came out. Then, when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel what he had been ordered. But when the people of Israel saw Moses' face, that the skin on Moses' face shone, 
he would put the veil back over his face until he went in again to speak with Adonai. Now, though we've seen most of these commands before, Jehovah repeats several of them as he reconfirms the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, now, we have just observed the consequences of the golden calf incident, okay, which resulted in the Mosaic Covenant being broken and invalidated. Therefore, it was necessary for the covenant to be reinstituted. And in verse 18, the biblical festival of matzah is also reordained. Now let me remind you that in the Bible, when you read of the festival of matzah, festival of unleavened bread, it's generally referring to a bundle of three different festivals. Okay? Passover, matzah, and first fruits. Okay. They all overlap and intertwine. Okay. Passover is the beginning festival that starts it all off, right here on the 14th. Then one day later begins matzah proper that goes on for seven days. One day after matzah, uh, unleavened bread begins, has, is the one day festival of first fruits. So, first fruits occurs during the seven days of matzah. You see that? You see how that all works together? Now, to the Hebrews, they were celebrating the release of their captivity from Egypt. Passover, if you'll recall, was when God went throughout Egypt and killed all the firstborn, but passed over those who trusted him by smearing the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Matzah was to remind them of how they hurried to get out of Egypt and they didn't have time to make bread that had yeast in it, leavening, and that allow it to rise. And first fruits is a spring time uh, agricultural festival when the first of the New Year's harvest is brought in. All works together. Now what Israel didn't and couldn't at that time have realized is that this holiday period was prophetic. And it was a physical demonstration of a heavenly principle and an ideal. It speaks to the death and resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. Now please listen carefully. For the Hebrews, while Passover and Matzah was a commemoration of a past happening, it was also looking forward to the future event of Messiah. Right? It was prophetic. However, since this this prophecy has now been fulfilled, Messiah has come, he has died, and he has arisen, for us it's entirely a memorial. It's a remembrance, one of supreme importance for us. I mean, it is a sad commentary that believers, under no authorization from God whatsoever, have abandoned these God-ordained holy observances and changed them to things like Good Friday and Easter. Even employing the name of the pagan fertility goddess Ishtar, 
all right, for the holiday's name, Easter, and employing her typical symbols of fertility, rabbits and eggs, okay, as part of our holiday ritual. I mean, I would suggest that we reconsider and that we reinstitute God's ordained festivals and perform them in as close a way as possible that we can to the original, considering the day we're in. Because what we have done is to choose man's ways over God's. Call it good and then attach holiness to it. And this is always a bad idea. In verse 19, Yehovah reconfirms the principles of redemption and of the firstborn. In verse 20, the Sabbath, the seventh day of rest, is again reinforced. In verse 21, another God-ordained festival is emphasized. The festival of weeks, called Shavuot in Hebrew. Church typically calls it what? Pentecost. Right. This is to be one of the pilgrimage festivals. Okay. That is what God has already commanded, and he confirms in verse 23 that three of the seven ordained festivals are to be celebrated in Jerusalem, or more, more correctly, at the central sanctuary. Because at first, the central sanctuary wasn't in Jerusalem. It was somewhere else. And everyone is to make a pilgrimage. They're to travel to the tabernacle, later the temple, to celebrate these three festivals. The first is matzah, unleavened bread. The second is shavuot. And the third one, sukkot. Okay. Sukkot is what it's talking about, by the way, in verse 22, when it speaks of the festival of ingathering. So that's, that, that festival has a lot of different names to it. Now notice that it is said here that only males are required to come to the tabernacle on these pilgrimage festivals. Later in Deuteronomy, though, it makes it clear that every effort should be made for the whole family to come. Now, obviously, it was going to be a while before the Israelites would be able to carry out Jehovah's command to make a pilgrimage. First, they'd have to settle into the land of Canaan. Now, Shiloh, Shiloh, okay, was where the tabernacle would be located for a while. Eventually, it would make its way to Jerusalem. Okay. As of the time of Exodus, Jerusalem was a small city built and ruled by the Jebusites. It was King David who eventually captured that city, changed its name to Jerusalem, and made it part of Israel. Let me also make a quick, quick observation about Pentecost. Pentecost being the day the Holy Spirit came and began indwelling men. Now, we know of this event primarily as that day when people started suddenly speaking in tongues. Okay? And some very strange ideas have formed about what actually happened there. Now, first, Pentecost is just a Greek word that means 50. Pente. Okay? The 50. Right? Second, the 50 days means that this holiday occurs 50 days after the day Christ rose from the dead. Okay. Pentecost is not a new holiday designed by Christians to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Although, often, it's almost taught that way. 
Rather, Pentecost is the Greek word that the early Christians used in place of the Hebrew word Shavuot. Third, understand, when the Holy Spirit descended upon man on that day, it was not a new holiday. There was not a new holiday created in remembrance of that event. It occurred on Shavuot, a biblical feast day instituted by God at the time of Moses. It was on that day that the Holy Spirit descended, which is exactly what the feast of Shavuot was prophetic of. The Holy Spirit descended on a whole bunch of Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of weeks, Shavuot. Why were they all there? It was a pilgrimage festival. They were commanded they had to be there. Okay, But these Jews were a little bit different than the rest of the Jews because they were what we might say today were believing Jews. They believed Yeshua was indeed who he said he was, the Messiah. They had come for the pilgrimage along with hundreds of thousands of other Jews from all over the Roman Empire. The language issue, speaking in tongues, I'd like to talk about for a minute. Jesus died and the Holy Spirit descended about 30 A.D. is about the best guess right now. The known world, including Judah and Jerusalem, was under Roman rule at that time. Jews lived all over the Roman Empire as far as Europe. They were vastly spread out. Probably at this moment in history, only about 10% of the world's Jewish population even lived in the Holy Land. All the rest scattered around the known world. Those scattered Jews to this day are called the diaspora. Dispersed. Dispersed Jews. So these diaspora Jews, as well as the Jews that still remained in the Holy Land, came as usual to the Feast of Weeks, each speaking various languages for whatever country they were from. There is no other Greek word that translates to the English word language. Rather, in that era, the commonly used term, the word language didn't exist. Instead, they said tongue. That's all. Okay. Therefore, the Bible used The word tongue was correct. That's exactly right. That's what they called it back then, the various languages. The miracle of tongues that occurred on Pentecost was that Jews from one area, who therefore spoke a certain language, could suddenly and supernaturally speak a language they didn't even know. Or they could understand a language that they couldn't speak. Okay. So we get this biblical description of how some observers, all right, undoubtedly Judean Jews who lived there in Jerusalem, were saying, you know, these guys must be drunk. You know, they're just babbling, meaningless nonsense. But some of the diaspora Jews 
who had come a long way from many of the remote nations are saying, no, 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 that's my language that guy's speaking. But how can he possibly do that? He's from a whole nother place. Right? I mean, just how many languages, tongues, were represented, we don't know. But at this time in history, there were scores of languages spoken in the Roman Empire. Here's another way to look at it. What happened at Pentecost was kind of a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, a whole lot of people who were rebelling against the Lord and who spoke a single universal language were suddenly and supernaturally given a whole bucketful of different and new languages and so they couldn't understand one another. But at Pentecost, a whole lot of people who trusted the Lord, who went to Jerusalem unable to understand one another because they spoke so many different languages, suddenly could understand one another. It's an amazing connection here. Okay. Then we get this strange command in verse 26 about not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Okay, well, today this is interpreted by the Jews by not serving dairy with meat. Okay, there have been many theories set forth as to why this is. Frankly, it even keeps the rabbis scratching their heads. Okay, but I think that if the simplest solution is usually the best answer, the reason's pretty obvious. Boiling, cooking, young animals, and their own mother's milk was a standard Canaanite fertility ritual. Well documented. And above all else, the Lord continuously reminds Israel not to do their rituals in a manner that the Canaanites do. I doubt there's really much beyond that in significance. Now beginning with verse 28, we get some information that sounds eerily familiar. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights. This was an additional, by the way, 40 days and 40 nights. All right, in God's presence. And during that time, it says he didn't eat and he didn't drink. Now, we're also told in a number of places in the Old Testament, including directly from Moses' own mouth, that sometime in the future, a prophet like Moses would come to Israel. That prophet turned out to be none other than Yeshua of Nazareth. Okay. And the list of parallels between Moses and Jesus is long. The most obvious is that Jesus came as the highest earthly mediator possible between God and man, just as did Moses. Jesus spent 40 days without food or drink out into the wilderness which is exactly what Moses suffered and even corresponds to where he was out in the desert region. Jehovah gave physical Israel the law written on stone through Moses and through meditation and self-discipline, they were to write these laws on their own hearts, meaning their own minds. Jehovah gave true spiritual Israel the same law through Jesus, but it would be supernaturally written on their hearts. Moses was higher than the high priest of Israel. Jesus was higher than the high priest of Israel. And now we're told 
that light radiated from Moses' face when he came down that mountain. Not allegorical light, real, visible light that the people could observe. Jesus not only radiated spiritual light, light that people could see with their eyes and detect in their spirits, but later when the other mediator came, the more perfect mediator, Jesus, you recall when he radiated light? Because he was the light. As Moses approached the camp, it says, Aaron and the people of Israel saw the stone tablets of the law and they saw the light emitting from Moses and it frightened them. As a matter of fact, the verses say, and when they came back, in other words, they saw him and they went, feet don't fail me now. And off they went. He's going, whoa, wait, it's me. All right, And it says they came back. And so from this time forward, we find that Moses has to put a veil over his face to block out the light. You suppose there's an interesting connection between the veil over the light in Moses' face and the veil that is between the holy place and the holiest of holies where the light of God resides? I think so. Now I wonder... The people ran away from the light of God. It scared them. They didn't want to see it. That's why he put the veil there. It frightened them. They didn't want it. You think we really want to hear God's voice and see his light? I mean, I don't know a believer who would say anything else, but sure I do. But I know what my honest choice was for so many years. And I suspect some of you were or are in the same boat. Maybe we only want to hear about God's voice and be told about his light. God was willing to tell the people directly, even to let them see a glimpse of his glory via the supernatural light emitting from Moses' face, but the Israelites declined. They preferred to be just told about it. Second hand. I mean, you can sit in this classroom listening to me. You can call, or rather you can listen to Christian tapes and music and teachings. Or go to churches, synagogues, religious seminars until the cows come home and hear all about God. But none of that's a substitute for a personal experience with him. Okay. Further... We can accept that bumper sticker theology that Walter J. Kaiser speaks of, whereby a short little compact list of doctrines are what we learn in our religious institutions, or we can diligently seek God in his word. The Holy Scripture, and we can gain so much more understanding. We can get God secondhand or firsthand, just like for Israel. Okay, it was their choice. It's our choice. Let's move on to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. Moses assembled the whole community of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things which Adonai has ordered you to do. 
On six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is to be a holy day for you, a Shabbat, of complete rest and honor of Adonai. Whoever does any work on is to be put to death. You're not to kindle a fire in any of your homes on Shabbat. Moses said to the whole community of the people of Israel, here is what Adonai has ordered. Take up a collection from Adonai, from among yourselves, anyone whose heart makes him willing is to bring the offering for Adonai. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones to be set for the ritual vest and the breastplate. Then let all the craftsmen among you come and make everything Adonai has ordered. The tabernacle with its tent, covering, fasteners, planks, crossbars, posts, and sockets. The ark with its poles, ark cover, and the curtain to screen it. The table with its poles, all its utensils and the showbread. The menorah for the light, with its utensils and lamps, and the oil for the light. The incense altar with its poles, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the screen for the entrance way at the entrance to the tabernacle. The altar for burnt offerings with its poles, all its utensils, the basin with its base. The tapestries for the courtyard with their posts and sockets, the screen for the gateway of the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle, the tent pegs for the courtyard with their ropes, the garments for officiating, for serving in the holy place and the holy garments of Aharon the Kohen and the garments for his sons so that they can serve in the office of priest. Then the whole community of the people of Israel withdrew from Moses' presence and they came everyone whose heart stirred him everyone whose spirit made him willing and brought Adonai's offering for the work on the tent for the tent of meeting for the service in it for the holy garments both men and women came as many as had willing hearts they brought nose rings earrings signet rings belts all kinds of gold jewelry everyone bringing an offering of gold to Adonai everyone who had blue purple or scarlet yarn fine linen tanned ram skins or fine leather brought them Everyone contributing silver or bronze brought, this, brought his offering for Adonai, and everyone who had acacia wood suitable for any of the work brought it. All the women who were skilled at spinning got to work and brought what they had spun, the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and the fine linen. Likewise, the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. The leaders brought the onyx stones and the stones to be set for the ritual vest and the breastplate, the spices and the oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Thus, every man and woman of the people of Israel whose heart impelled him to contribute to any of the work Adonai had ordered through Moses brought it to Adonai as a voluntary offering. Moses said to the people of Israel, See, Adonai has singled out Betzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Judah, He has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, understanding and knowledge concerning every kind of artisanry. He is a master of designing gold, silver, bronze, cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving and every other craft. Adonai has given him and Aholiab, the son of Akisamech, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with the skill needed for every kind of work, whether done by an artisan, a designer, an embroiderer using blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, or a weaver. They have the skill for every kind of work and design. Okay, this begins the last 
of the six divisions of Exodus. The one Everett Fox calls the building of the dwelling, logically enough. Moses, a veil now over his face, to filter out this visible radiance resulting from being in God's presence, assembles the whole community of Israel to announce to them all that Yehovah had told him over those two 40-day periods of time. And as much as anything, though, this formal gathering was to commemorate the renewal, or better, the reinstitution of the Mosaic Covenant in a very public way. Now, for a total of 80 days, Moses had been getting instructions from God for Israel. Two times he ascended that mountain for periods of 40 days each, coming down after the first period to interrupt the golden calf catastrophe. Okay. It's no wonder it took him years and the help of some scribes to write down everything that the Lord told him. Okay. Now, it would have been the elders of Israel, the people's representatives, that assembled before Moses to hear these edicts, to hear these laws of God, and to reaffirm the, and re, uh, uh, the renewal of the covenant. Okay. That was usual and customary in that era to only have the leadership present. And besides, there's no way Moses could have made himself heard to something near three million people. Okay. Now let's be clear. For many chapters, Jehovah has been instructing Moses on the specifications for the tabernacle, the furnishings, the, how the priests were to be ordained, the establishment of these festivals, and a lot more. Now, finally... The instructions are being passed along to the people of Israel and actual construction is about to commence. And one cannot help but notice what the very first instruction concerns. Sabbath. Kind of interesting. You know, we really need to come to grips with God's priorities. I mean, and if it's not obvious to you by now that God put Sabbath right at the top of the list, you either haven't been here or you've not been paying much attention. Okay. In verse 3, God's command is that not only is Israel not to do any work on the Sabbath, but even starting a fire is prohibited at the expense of death. Why was starting a fire such a big deal? The reason, the only reason to have a fire was either to keep warm from a chilly evening or to use it for some form of work. They could keep warm in plenty of ways without fire for a day. Okay. But a fire was needed for most types of work. For cooking, for the metal arts, for concocting dyes, for cloth, for baking earthenware, a whole range of crafts. For you physicists out there, notice what the essence of fire is. It's the conversion of matter into energy. Okay. Fire is a transforming force. And God was ordaining a state of stillness for his creation on Sabbath. The only authorized use of fire on the Sabbath was for sacrificing. 
And the priest performed that exclusively at the tabernacle. Now the idea here is that no work, a complete rest and dependence on God was to be observed on the Sabbath. Recall that the Hebrews were now living primarily on manna. Okay? And that God instructed them to gather double the amount of manna needed on the day before Sabbath so that they could prepare it and have it ready and not have to gather gather it or cook it on Shabbat. Now, hundreds of years later, Yeshua would tell his disciples to rest in him. We're to rest in and depend on the finished work of God. It is the Sabbath that sets up this principle and gives us a model for what this is trying to communicate. You see, in so many ways in the Old Testament and the New, we're carefully shown that our works, our efforts to achieve a saving kind of righteousness before God is worse than useless. Okay? It's offensive. Okay? In fact, when God provides the way, His way for our holiness, it's that which we must rely on. Okay? We're not to dismiss it and work towards our own way. We're not to try to use His way in combination with our work. Okay? We can never add to what God has done. To do so is to diminish what he has done. A couple of chapters ago, Yehovah told Israel that the way to be holy in his eyes and a way to be clothed in holiness was to observe Shabbat. The Sabbath would clothe Israel by God's grace in his holiness. He didn't give Israel option B or C. With the advent of Christ, the way to be holy in Jehovah's eyes is to have faith in Christ. And that trust and faith will be our holiness. Our human efforts to be holy, to work our way towards holiness, are as filth to God. They can't do anything but pollute and defile the only means of holiness that he provided. The Sabbath rest, and Christ's rest all work together. Okay. And one didn't abolish nor end the other, nor is one a substitute for the other. Now beginning in verse 4, Moses calls for a contribution from the people of Israel to be, in order to build the tabernacle and all the associated items. Then we see an important theme play out through the rest of this chapter. Those who were willing and wise were the ones who responded to Moses' call for a contribution. The contribution consisted of two classes, labor and materials. Verse 22 makes it clear that women were to be included in this effort. Men and women alike, everyone of willing mind participated. While it was men in this patriarchal society so typical of the time that were the appointed leaders, the men did not just sit and order the women around. They worked with their hands side by side, men doing crafts customary for males, women tending to crafts appropriate for females from that era. Now, from here through Exodus 
39, we're going to move really rapidly. Primarily just reading the scriptures. Okay? Because this simply is going to repeat a lot of things that we've already studied. So we're going to really start to move faster yet tonight. Let's move on to Exodus 36. Bezlael and Oholiav, along with the craftsmen whom Adonai has endowed with the wisdom and skill necessary to carry out the work needed for the sanctuary, are to do exactly according to everything Adonai has ordered. Moses, sum, Moses, excuse me, Moses summoned Bezalel and Oholiav and every craftsman to whom Adonai had given wisdom, everyone whose heart stirred him to come and take part in the work. They received from Moses all the offering which the people of Israel had brought for the work of building the sanctuary, but they still kept bringing voluntary offerings every morning until all the craftsmen doing the work for the sanctuary left the work they were involved with to tell Moses the people are bringing far more than is needed to do the work Adonai has ordered done. So Moses gave an order which was proclaimed throughout the camp. Neither men nor women are to take any further efforts for the sanctuary offering. In this way, the people were restrained from making additional contributions. For what, they had for what they had already was not only sufficient for doing all the work, it was too much. All the skilled men among them who did the work made the tabernacle, using ten sheets of finely woven linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. He made them with cherubim worked in that had been crafted by a skilled artisan. Each sheet was 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. All the sheets were the same size. He joined five sheets one to another. The other five sheets he joined one to another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost sheet in the first set and did the same on the edge of the outermost sheet of the second. He made 50 loops on the one sheet, 50 on the edge of the sheet in the second set. The loops were opposite one another. He made 50 fasteners of gold coupled the sheets to each other with the fasteners so that the tabernacle formed a single unit. He made sheets of goat's hair to be used as a tent covering the tabernacle. He made 11 sheets. Each sheet was 45 feet long and 6 feet wide. All 11 sheets were the same size. He joined 5 sheets together and 6 sheets together. He made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost sheet in the first set and 50 loops on the outermost sheet in the second. He made 50 fasteners of bronze to join the tent together so they'd be a single unit. He made a covering for the tent of tanned ramskins and an outer covering of fine leather. He made the upright planks of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each plank was 15 feet long and two and a quarter feet wide. There were two projections on each plank and the planks were joined to one another. This is how he made all the planks for the tabernacle. He made the planks for the tabernacle as follows. 20 planks for the south, facing southward. He made 40 silver sockets under the 20 planks, two sockets under one plank for its two projections, and two sockets under another plank for its two projections. For the second side of the tabernacle, to the north, he made 20 planks and there 40 silver sockets, two sockets under one plank, two under another. For the rear part of the tabernacle toward the west, he made six planks. For the corners of the tabernacle in the rear, he made two planks, double from the bottom all the way to the top, but joined into a single ring. He did the same with both of them at the two corners. 
Thus there were eight planks with their silver sockets, 16 sockets, two sockets under each plank. He made crossbars of acacia wood, five for the planks on the one side of the tabernacle, five crossbars for the planks on the other, and five crossbars for the planks at the side of the tabernacle at the rear towards the west. He made the, cross, the middle crossbar so that it extended from one end of the planks to the other, halfway up. He overlaid the planks with gold, made gold rings for them through which the crossbars could pass, and overlaid the crossbars with gold. He made the curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely woven linen. He made them with cherubim worked in that had been crafted by a skilled artisan. He made for it four posts of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold and gold hooks, and cast for them four silver sockets. For the entrance to the tent, he made a screen of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely woven linen in colors, the work of a weaver. With his five posts and their hooks, he overlaid their capitals and attached their rings for hanging with gold while their five sockets were of bronze. The people who were giving so generously of their materials that Moses had to command them to actually stop giving. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. <laughs> they had collected more than enough. I really like this. I, I really like it that Moses didn't have this endless list of things to do with the people's money. You know, God instructed what he wanted, so Moses went to the people to collect only what was needed. Not skimpy, but not more than was needed. You know, the church is an imaginative and a very generous group of people. I can and you can imagine wonderful things we suppose God would want done on this earth, almost without limit. But when we consult the Bible, it just doesn't seem to work that way. Our sincerity and our goodwill and our energy and our viewpoint of mercy and of generosity counts for nothing. We, we can do the most beautiful, kind acts, but as a child of God, saved by grace, if we're not specifically led by God to do them, then what we do carries no eternal value okay, and is not done within the kingdom we now belong, the kingdom of God. It's just another worldly work of man that's going to burn up right along with all the others. Too much, particularly in wealthy America, our contribution is seen almost exclusively as money. Here in Exodus, we see that it is our money and our time that forms our contribution. Please don't think that in any way I'm criticizing those who contribute money but not time. If that is what you know God is leading you to do, then by all means do it. Okay. The Jews have developed a rather interesting view of what the contribution of money to the Lord's work is. They see it as frozen work. That is your work, your time, is represented and stored away in the value of the money you earned by working. 
So when the time comes to give a contribution and you give money, you are in essence giving as well work that was stored away, frozen. But above all, regardless of what our contribution is, it must be God-appointed. Just as it says in Exodus, though, it is the willing and the wise that listen to God and do as he commands. God will appoint you. He will appoint you to contribute from time to time. But he will not take it from you. God will not instruct your church or synagogue authorities to monitor your giving, cheering on the big givers and laying guilt on the lax. That just is not the biblical principle. Okay? All that we give today amounts to a free will contribution, just as here in Exodus. It is not a sacrifice. It's not associated with a sacrifice. Okay? That is, our giving is not part of the sacrificial system. Okay? And it must be given by your will, not somebody else's. Okay. Yet it is the wise man and woman who obeys God when you hear him calling you to contribute. Time, money, both. Let's move on to Exodus 37. We'll end the night with that. Betzlael made the ark of acacia wood, three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high, and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and out and put a molding of gold for it around the top. He cast four gold rings for it at its four feet, two rings on each side. He made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He put the carrying poles for the ark and the rings on the sides of the ark. He made a cover for the ark of pure gold, three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide. He made two karuvim, cherubim, of gold. He made them of hammered work for the two ends of the ark cover. One keruv, cherub, for one end, and one keruv for the other. He made the keruvim of one piece with the ark cover at its two ends. The keruvim had their wings spread out above, so that their wings covered the ark. Their faces were toward each other and toward the ark cover. He made the table of acacia wood three feet long, 18 inches wide and 18 inches high. He overlaid it with pure gold put a molding of gold around the top of it. He made around it a rim, a handbreadth wide, and put a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four gold rings, attached the rings to the four corners near its four legs. The rings to hold the carrying poles for the table were placed close to the rim. He made the carrying poles for the table of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold. He made the utensils to be put on the table, its dishes, its pans, bowls, pitchers, of pure gold. He made the menorah of pure gold. He made out, made it out of hammered work. Its base, shaft, cups, rings of outer leaves and flowers were a single unit. There were six branches extending from its sides, three branches of the menorah on one side of it, three on the other, and one branch with three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a ring of outer leaves and petals, likewise on the opposite branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a ring of outer leaves and petals, and similarly for all six branches extending from the menorah. On the central shaft of the menorah were four cups shaped like almond blossoms. 
each with its ring of outer leaves and petals. With, uh, let's see, where each pair of branches joined the central shaft was a ring of outer leaves of one piece with the pair of branches, thus for all six branches. Their rings of outer leaves and their branches were of one piece with the shaft. Thus, the whole menorah was one piece of hammered work made of pure gold. He made its seven lamps, its tongs, and its trays of pure gold. The menorah and its utensils were made of 66 pounds of pure gold. He made the altar on which to burn incense of acacia wood, 18 inches square and 3 feet. Its horns were a single unit. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top all around its side and its horns. He put around it a molding of gold. He made two gold rings for it under its molding at the two corners on both sides to hold the carrying poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the anointing oil and the pure incense of aromatic plant substances as would an expert perfume maker. Notice that as we're given a play-by-play -play account of the building of the tabernacle, it starts with the dwelling itself, the structure. Okay. That is, just as with any construction effort, one begins with the outer portion and works its way to the interior. Okay. The final phase, of course, is to furnish the completed structure. That's the part my wife likes the best. That furnishing part. Okay. In earlier chapters, though, when God was giving Moses instructions, it was the opposite. God's instructions began with the furnishings, the inmost items, and worked its way out to the structure. If we were to look very closely some of the detail is left out. The stress in this part of Exodus is on the people actually doing God's bidding, actually carrying through with God's commands. Rather than like in earlier section when God was just simply handing out the blueprints, all right, the plans on what was to be built. Next week, we'll finish the final couple chapters, or three actually, of Exodus, and that'll do it.